You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Wow. Um, yeah, it's... Uh yeah, so I mean, this this really struck home for me, for me. I mean, um, I grew up um, in rural Nova Scotia, Canada, and you know, we had a very, um, I think, you know, in terms of troubled um, community, that really at the heart of it was actually the um, the disconnect between the story of the of the indigenous community and the story of the of the white or the invader and immigrant um, community, as as Judy um, refers to it during our conversation, which is again something that I never really thought about. Before. About how those three um, those three eyes actually actually come together, but you know, kind of, and what trauma was actually caused. I mean, certainly, you know, I've been a part of that. I've also, you know, um, seen things happen that, you know, I, I look back on now, and you, it's normal to you because you live inside the community. But I certainly think, you know, you look back on it now, and you realize just how much damage was actually caused, and kind of how everyone was actually trying to find ways. To, to heal themselves. So, you know, it was incredibly, um, yeah, uplifting to actually hear how um, Judy is uh, a rebel inside the system and really fighting to create a different type of community. Mm, and that fighting within a system and a self-described rebel is, is the spirit that you hear throughout and a dedication to just slowly, incrementally change things through listening and understanding that someone's hurt, someone's deep pain, someone's deep trauma is is someone's for life and to allow transformation to heal in there um, needs space. Um, and to hear Judy talk about her her story, where she's based, her heritage was really powerful and to understand where we are now. Um, we're recording this with Black Lives Matter movement happening very strong at the forefront of a lot of culture um, coming across from America but really shining a spotlight on um, Indigenous Australian Aboriginal deaths in custody but as you'll hear Judy also pointing to lots of different issues that aren't necessarily getting spotlighted and I think there's some deeper things that get brought up in the way Judy orates her story about um, where to focus on things how to focus on things and how to listen and how to heal there's a really great question in there and what is healing to Judy and I think everyone should hear that if you don't hear anything else in there. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think what she, what she really leaves us with is that, you know, what we're all actually on, um, regardless of where um, we're actually at, is really, it's a quest to actually rediscover our own humani- humanity. And, you know, I think what Judy does a great job of doing um, in her own unique way is actually um, posing that question to all of us. So certainly we hope you uh, you enjoy the conversation as much as we enjoyed being a part of it. Okay, so my name is Judy Atkinson. Um, I have a mixed heritage. I kind of refer to the three eyes. Uh, my great-grandmother was from Yemen country near the Upper Dawson in Queensland. My great-grandfather was a Bunjalung man, just on the border of Bunjalung and Gumbunja language, uh, country. Um, I also have one member of that linkage that came out on a prison hulk, and my mother's parents both were German, so the three eyes, Indigenous, Invader, coming from England, and immigrants, the uh, immigration of uh, a German couple who got married and had 10 children. I live in um, Bunjalung country in um, a road called Manny Ridge, which is um, the word for Wallaby Ridge. Lots of wallabies along the road here, uh, halfway between uh, Lismore and Nimbin. 
And I live with my daughter and her husband and my grandchildren. And it's a beautiful place to be, particularly when we've been in lockdown. And Haz, what have you been finding yourself doing um, throughout lockdown? What have I been doing? Lots and lots of work. I had a call this morning, for example, from a in a crisis situation where a, uh, a young woman had been found dead and they wanted to, the organisation wanted to know how they would work with the um, other people within that organisation to help them grieve for what had happened with the young woman and what they should do. Um, I had a call from the Northern Territory about some issues that I'll follow through on as soon as I get off the phone. So um, I've been writing, lots of writing, bringing some cards together and uh, just responding to um, people who want me to do things. The phone is a good uh, kind of thing to be on. You can talk to people and um, you can do some good work that way. Mm. That's good. You have been doing a lot of good work throughout your um, lifetime. I was hoping you could... Uh, to give people who haven't had a, a chance to hear the work that you you have done and do do um, just from your mouth, I suppose. I have a bio here, but you have a few bios around the place and it would just be nice to hear you say it. Look, I'm a little bit of a rebel. I don't follow uh, processes really well. So some things happened way back in the mid-1980s that turned my whole life around. <laughs> I um, have been following that pathway ever since. And I've, I guess I've clashed with and also worked solidly with different government departments, but more particularly I'm really focused on working at a community level with kids, kids in schools, and community organisations who are doing really good work. Um, the area that I'm working in is violence trauma. Uh, so. Uh, trauma comes out of all sorts of things, war zones. People come back from war zones and they've got a uh, diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, family violence, complex trauma, and children, children being harmed, developmental trauma. So all of that is part of the whole and that's where I work. That's what I do. And why do you find school in particular an area to practice, Judy? So, again, I'm interested, you know, your notion of being a, a, a re- rebel up against the system in some ways, so working, with, working inside the system sometimes, but also at other times taking it on. I'm just wondering why you find school the perfect place to actually um, deal with, um, you know, the issues of trauma. Yeah, well, look, um, I'm not saying that uh, the system itself, I think the system is broken. And I think the education system in particular is broken because what we do with children who are um, acting out, who are maybe not settled when they come in on Monday morning after the drugs have hit town on the weekend so their homes are unsafe, the education process has been to uh, kick them out, to suspend them or expel them. Now, there's a law in this country that all children have to be in school, but some schools are unsafe. And sometimes some schools will make judgments on children that labels them as bad kids when, in fact, this society has not responded to the needs of those children. So um, quite a few years ago, about nine years, ten years now, I got a call one day from a woman who had been a school principal here in Nimbin, uh, down at Casino and other places within the New South Wales Department of Education. And she'd, she'd been asked particularly to... Um, Look at a school in Western New South Wales 
and could she sit down and talk to me about what we could do if she accepted the principalship of that school. We had a beautiful conversation on our veranda and we mapped out how we would respond to the needs of children, uh, not knowing what was happening with them, but they'd all been booted out of other schools, kicked out of other schools. Now, I just want to make a point here. There is a law in this country that says that all children have to be in school. That's the law. And yet when a Department of Education is expelling or suspending children for 100 days and 200 days over a school year, the Department of Education is actually breaking the law. So my sense was that it would be a really good opportunity to engage with the school. So we sat on my veranda and we mapped out a way that we could start to engage with kids who were being brought into this particular school because it was the catchment after kids had been booted out of all the other schools. By the way, they generally um, were not engaged in tall education, were living down under the bridge or doing things like that. So she got the job. She went out to that department, out uh, to that school, and um, in the first three months, she would ring me every night and we would talk about what she was experiencing working with the children. And she loved those children. Um, they were little, like I, I call it scallywag. They would really give you grey heads, and I had plenty already. But every night we would talk. And then one day she rang me and she said, "Is there any way you can get a psychiatric assessment on a child? Uh, this little fellow is just really, really struggling, big time." Um, and I got a psychiatric assessment. It was a Skype assessment. Um, so he had um, mood dep depressive um, paranoia. He, he was paranoid. He thought the world was unsafe. He had suicide ideation. This is, the this is the psychiatric assessment on a child. He had complex loss and grief issues, and he had complex compound developmental trauma issues. So that's the psychiatric assessment on a child. So let me go back to that. The... Um, First point was that he thought the world was unsafe. This little fella had seen his mother killed in a domestic at three years of age. So his world was clearly unsafe. And that, what had triggered him is that he'd just seen his auntie hit by a truck. And he had, in that time, tried to suicide twice just after this. And that was the reason for the call. Um, the records showed that they said he was just attention-seeking in the two times that he'd tried to harm himself, kill himself, a suicide attempt. Uh, the loss and grief and the complex developmental trauma, they prescribed him Ritalin. That was the prescription medication. Um, I think they also decided he should have some speech therapy. What that taught me was that uh, we were incredibly unskilled. Um, wherever I was working, I, I found an unskilled workforce, an inability of people to respond to the needs of children who were hurting. So um, that kind of reinforced for me what I knew from the work that I had I kind of got distracted into. I'm using a distraction into what I thought was some really important work from 1987, which had me actually focusing on children after I was working in Cape York at the time. So um, I'll go back to that child, the inability of the system to respond to the child's needs, um, 
domestic violence resulting in the death of his mother, two suicide attempts, and yet the only uh, response to the child's needs was to prescribe him medication. Now, I think, quite frankly, I think that's criminal. But it showed me that uh, we're so far behind in our need to respond to children with complex trauma. So my complex trauma uh, background diagnosis is important in this. You're not wrong, Judy, that understanding that you bring to the fore and into the classrooms, into the school environment is needed so much and needed across the country um, in all schools, I would imagine. I was wondering if you're continuing to work with the school, um, that relationship that formed back in 2008 and and what's happening in in the future and and right now. Ah, Well, it's been a really exciting and beautiful and distressing opportunity to work with the school and I'll actually be moving up there as soon as I'm allowed to with with this lockdown thing, the coronavirus, um, to work with the children uh, for six months this year and the plan is to embed within the school a whole lot of healing activities, you know, the creative arts, music, dance, um, theatre, letting kids role play how they're feeling. story, being on country. So working with the kids, knowing they have this complex trauma diagnosis, we know that, it's it's a given. Um, Then also working with the families of the children, and it might be the grandparents, it might be the the children themselves, so working with those families. Um, And then working across the community with the Aboriginal organisations. I should say this is all, I'm coming from an Aboriginal worldview here. So working with the Aboriginal organisations in town and helping them skill up. And then finally, also working with the mainstream organisations. The um, I call it uh, developing a professional practice, a c- communities of professional practice so that they're starting to work with each other. One of the things that we found was that organisations will sit in their own boxes be funded. We 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 had sixty seven different organisations in this particular town I'm working in, and um, none of them were talking to each other. But the thing that was distressing to us was that when we started to work with the kids who were really in distress, nobody wanted to know about that. When we heard children, I have another terminology here: behaviour is language. So the children's behaviour was the language that was telling us what they were living with. And as the children got to trust the school and the people at the school, we started to understand the depth of the uh, drugs that were coming to town that made it unsafe for the children. And we also started to understand that some of the children were seeing, and I'll use the term domestic violence or family and sexual violence is probably a better term, family and sexual violence. Children were living with family and sexual violence that I hadn't encountered previously. Um, So we realized that if we were going to turn their lives around, and that was our mandate, that's what we wanted to do, that we had to focus on their needs. And we've had some beautiful experiences. We've got uh, where the children have said, I love dance because I can dance all sorts of different ways my body feels better. 
you know, I, I love theatre because I can be growly different people and, and animals, which is a way of getting rid of anger. Um, I like writing stories because I can make stories up. Uh, so the children had their own way of expressing the kinds of therapeutic approaches we put into the school. More particularly, parents started to drop into the school and grandparents started to drop into the school in an attempt to understand why the children wanted to be at school, whereas before they didn't want to go to school. So that opened a doorway for us to talk with the children, talk with the parents and the grandparents, the carers. Now, I have a theory on this. I, I'm a taxpayer. I've been paying taxes since I was 14 years of age, so I've 60 years ago been paying taxes. And my taxes go into building schools. So I believe that we should be using schools for more than just putting kids into a classroom and having them sit down and learn the ABC. Um, so we were starting to open the school for uh, people to come in and run. we ran workshops and things like that. More particularly, once we put into place um, the what I call the healing arts, um, dance, music, theatre, uh, story, um, the children's literacy and numeracy level under the NAP plan increased between 150 to 300%. So children who were failing at school, who had been kicked out of other schools, who uh, choose to go down and mum around under the bridge where it was safe for the kids compared to other places in town, found this school safe, and then they started to thrive. Uh, my goodness, have they taught us so much. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. And if you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. So Judy, in your own mind, I mean, what, what do you believe is healing. So when you, you know, you've used lots of these different techniques of unpacking um, different types of trauma and, you know, but where, where do these kids get to? What, what in your own mind is, is healing? What does, what does that term mean to you? Okay. So the word healing comes from the old Norse word, uh, Helen, and it literally means a return to wholeness. Now, if I'm talking to you, I will tell you there's a little baby in the womb um, feels the punch if the mum's punched in the tummy or the harsh fighting words between two parents. So um, even in the womb, at nine, at seven months, the baby in utero is already sensing whether the world is safe or unsafe. And then children move into you know early childhood up to the time they go to school and quite often they're harmed by the things that are happening around them. Now, We've just been sitting, um, looking at the screen, listening to the news, reading things, 
about uh, Black Lives Matter. And clearly what's happened in Australia is Black Lives Matter as well as they do in the United States. Uh, the slavery industry in the United States has produced a whole lot of things and the colonisation in Australia which builds prisons has also produced a sense of not being welcome in our own country in a way. But the children taught us that when we showed them unconditional love, when we looked at their capacity to, um, to, to care for each other inspirationally, to, to uh, kind of come and tell us when one of the children was struggling or um, make sure that uh, they would come to the school and tell us that there was no food at home. And so, you know, under the schooling system we were working with, the children, um, we had a, k- a kitchen and the children were, were taught uh, to cook a meal. They were allowed to cook meals, so they had to read a recipe. They had to measure things. So as they cooked food for themselves because they were hungry, they were also allowed to take food home um, to their siblings when things weren't too good at home. And that gave them a sense of self-esteem of being able to do things well. The school set up a garden at one place and the kids had their hands in the soil and were kind of really, really happy when the, the uh the tomatoes had little tomato, red tomatoes on them, feeling that they'd grown something. But they also went out and did a lot of uh, on-country activities, um, dance, uh, music, drumming. Uh. Now, I'm just going to stop for a minute and say that that didn't mean that everything was absolutely great. Because what we learned was... On the Friday afternoon, the kids would start to get agitated. They were starting to anticipate that the weekend was going to be hard. And on Monday morning, the school would be prepared for the kids to be uh, agitated. Um, So they were telling us what was happening in their behaviour, what was happening in the classroom on them. And sometimes children would come in on Monday And they would have um, a form of behaviour that would tell us that we had to listen more deeply and we had to respond not from a punitive approach, uh, but we had to make sure the school was safe. So I tell this story a lot um, because I like to give respect to Margaret Hayes, the principal there. Um, On a Monday morning, this little fella has come in and he... Uh, was pretty uh, agitated and he had got himself a big knife. So obviously the school went into lockdown because he was running around with a knife and the school's in lockdown. Now the lesson was, and it's changed and I'll talk about policing later, um, the lesson was that um, as the, um, if we called the police in, then what we would have is an escalation of the problem. If you had kids up on the roof, and they did get up on the roof when they were all agitated, um, and we got the fire brigade in, and there was a punitive approach, the issue escalated. So this little fellow's running around the school paddock with this knife, threatening all sorts of things, and the school's in lockdown. And then the school principal walks out. Now, she knew uh, under trauma principles that there are four F's, three F's actually, fight, flight, freeze, 
and the other ones are we 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 just need to be loved friendship but fight flight freeze that 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 if the last step is when we are feeling uh, dislocated and and not part of um being valued but anyway the fight flight right that's what kids do but the freeze one is when they dissociate to um a situation so he was in a dissociated state running around with this knife the principal could see through his eyes and the way he was moving that he wasn't in flight he wasn't in in, in wanting to harm somebody fight he was dissociated with the knife so she walks out into the class, into the schoolyard where he's running around, threatening. She doesn't go near him, really close to him, but she comes enough near him to say in a voice that he could hear, and I'll call him Billy because that was my dad's name. Hey, Billy, I always knew you wanted to be a ninja. Okay. So, you know, in his state, he heard what she said. And he just stopped for a minute to hear the word ninja because he had a big thing about ninjas. And then she keeps walking, but she doesn't, she doesn't engage with him. And she says, I always knew you could be a good ninja. You know what I think you could do? I think you could throw that knife into the ground and it would stand up and it would show me what a great ninja you are. And he then stops. He focuses in and he throws the knife. And the knife stands up pretty well. Now, if it had been me, I'd have raised over and grabbed the knife. But she kind of moved a bit close to him and said, you know what, you are the best ninja. I think you can do it again. Now, go and get that knife, pick it up, and have another go. And he did. But by this time, he's coming back out of his disassociated state. And I'm talking trauma therapy here. And he um, picks the knife up, and he focuses in, and he throws it again. Now, by this time, she's turned to face him and he's got, she's got his attention and he's focused on the fact that he wants to be the best ninja you could possibly be. So she says to him, yep, you're a pretty good ninja. You did it pretty well, but I know you can do better. Come pick that knife up and show me again how you can throw it and make it stand up straight. And uh, he then does that, picks the knife up throws it, it stands up straight in the ground. And then she says to him, and she's looking at him by this time, and he's now fully looking at her, so they're, connection, they're in connection. She says, you are the best ninja in the world. I want you to now go and pick that knife up and bring it to me. Can you do that, please? And he walks over and picks the knife up and brings it to her. Now, you know, I wish those services that have to work with people who are in real trauma and dissociation or whatever could uh, dis, uh, you know, dis disable or to, to, to uh, disarm a person in the way that she disarmed that child without causing um, them to feel embarrassed. So, yeah, and I guess I'd like to say something about that and I, I want to bring your attention now to how we, we label Aboriginal kids and a lot of other kids, but I'm particularly focused on Aboriginal children as bad kids. And so the story I wanted to bring into this focus was working in Cape York in 1987. And um, we had finished a meeting. Uh, we were looking at $23 million of housing money, how we were going to allocate it. 
and I've written about this, but I want to repeat it here. And uh, after the meeting, one of the aunties come up to talk to me and she said, oh, girl, you know, when you've got time today, can we sit down and have a talk? And I said, sure, aunt, you know, let's get this out of the way and then we'll sit down somewhere and we'll have a talk. So I um, met her that night and she told me that the week previously, a little five-year-old child had been raped, but nobody would do anything. And I can remember, I can clearly remember what happened to me in that moment. What do you mean? What do you mean? A child has been raped and nobody will do anything? So I went to the 27 men and one woman who were part of the Aboriginal Coordinating Council and I asked them if I could look into that and respond to Aunt's request. And they said, yes, of course. Now, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody was in place at that time, but nobody, nobody was talking about what had just been presented to me by this elder. So I then went to the services in that town, and I can clearly remember um, health, police, child protection kind of just rolling their eyes and saying, well, it's cultural, isn't it? Because they were all white fellows. And that taught me something. Uh, and in telling that story, I, I, um, I wanted to make a point. It changed my life. That changed my life. I then started to focus on the work I do. And I had found some writings by a First Nations academic from Canada, Dennis Eastman, Charles Eastman, sorry. And he said, he wrote that when you see a new trail or a footprint that you don't know, that you've never seen before, follow it to the point of knowing. And so my life changed. I started on this this journey of trying to understand things. I just want to say to you that as I started to look deeply into uh, these issues, I found things that nobody would talk, was talking about. I found uh, issues of uh, abusive children that were coming out of schools. Um, uh, and this is all documented in the uh, the volume, Violence in Australia. A school principal who was sexually attacked on kids. Um, and so I, I had this journey I was on. It was this trail I was on. And I was trying to make sense of a world that I thought had, was quite senseless. Quite. Um, I then um, went to Canada to sit with First Nations in Canada. Um, and I looked at... Uh, their alcohol and other drug programs, um, the Nietzsche Institute, Pound Makers, other places like that. So I came back to Australia and I decided to do a PhD. I was invited by three different universities to pick this up. I was writing a lot by this time and getting it published um, on the things that I, would I was trying to make sense of. Um, more women had been beaten to death and the deaths in custody in certain places, but nobody was talking about that. And we've got a big discussion going at the moment uh, out of uh, what's happened in America, Black Lives Matter, but we're still not talking to the extent I should be talking. I think we should be talking about uh, violence in the home and how it affects children. So... Mm, so I started a PhD, and, and the point I want to make in this is that, and I'm going back to Charles Eastman, uh, 
I started to listen. Um, I went back to where my dad grew up in central Queensland and I was sitting on the riverbank talking to men who were drinking and asking them, what's this violence that we're looking at? You know, the things that are happening around you. And they just look at me and say, oh, there's no violence here. Sis, and they'd have a broken arm or a smashed up face, but there was no violence. Um, I, I was working, you know, with the alcohol and other drug programs. I was up in the psych unit uh, at the hospital. Um, uh, so there was all of these different areas that I was sitting and listening to people, deeply listening to people. I had found Miriam Rose's words, uh, Diddy, uh, listening to one another in contemplative reciprocal relationships. But suddenly this pathway changed for me. And I knew that I wasn't just looking at domestic violence, nor was I just at that time, looking at the fact that some white fellows in Cape York could dismiss the rape of a child. What I was then looking at, how across generations, from the time that we had, the, 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 the prison hogs had saved, saved into Sydney Cove, I realised that we were looking at something much deeper. And again, it changed my life. Um, I think I, I did a whole lot of workshops over, over nearly five years, you know, doing workshops for five days. Or one workshop I, tried, I ran for 20 days. My question was, what is healing? How do we heal? And going back to the words of Charles Eastman, I'm quoting from him, the way of knowledge is like an old way of hunting. You in the near trail, so this was the child, footprint, the child. If you follow that faithfully, faithfully, it may lead you to a clearer trail, a track. So um, I want to kind of just stop for a minute and say, what this road has done was taken me on the pathway to how do we heal? How do we heal not just individuals, but how do we heal as a nation? In academic terms, I would call that, uh, what is an indigenous critical pedagogy? How do we bring that into the work we're doing? Um, so how do we heal as a nation? And how do we truly listen to each other when we want to close those stories off about the children? We don't want to hear it. Yeah, I've done a lot of talking then. No, that's um, that's incredible, Judy. So, I mean, I think you know, from from our end, you've kind of you've really touched on most most of the questions that um, both Patrick and I had here on our run list. So, thank you. That's uh, incredible, and uh, you know, we're both. Um, I wish we could still see each other. I think both Patrick and I are sitting here um, just in in amazement. One of the the story, and I guess in you know in in closing, um, Judy, what I, what I'd really like to know is you know you you talk about following these these footprints and this time that we actually find ourselves in and we were talking before we got started you know that australia over the last year really we've seen drought we've seen bushfires we've seen covid19 and yeah. now also i think we're seeing this um this other um 
stake in terms of kind of black black lives matter that we're actually entering into which is and all of these things are pushing us really about gaining our attention i think around lots of different things that are actually happening in mm. our world whether that's from the way that we treat our environment through to the way that we actually interact mm. with one another and you know the kind mm. of i guess the you know just how um generic our immunity is actually becoming right which is uh you know again it reminds me of um what's what's happened in the past in terms of that you know these new viruses are now crossing over as they used to cross over between people they're crossing over between us and animals as an example and you know the then the last part i think is equally the most important part of that is actually how do we actually listen and treat one another and what i'm you know the kind of last question that that i would have before we finish is where do you see these, if we keep following these footprints and we keep actually being able to listen and listen deeper, where do you think this will actually head for us as, as a country and as a people? I'm going to answer that in two ways. First of all, if we don't, uh, we've had all these signs now that the fires, the floods, the, the, the virus, the damage, the, the, the way we treat animals and now the way we treat each other Um then we're on the road to destruction. So it's up to us to make the choice of the right road. And I'm, I'm deliberately using the word healing, um, not all the psychotherapy language, but healing. How do we heal? When I use that word, um, people will, I'm talking about people I'm working with who have been really hurt in many different ways. There will be tears in their eyes and they will ask how they can heal. So I think um, what we're challenged to do as humans is start to find our humanity, um, find who we are. You know, we're supposed to have intelligence, and yet we think that uh, we can kill, you know, burn, kill, cut down trees, uh, destroy the planet on which we live, and it won't have an impact on each of us, um, and it will. So the answer for me is, and I think the um, the most important invitation that has come out of Aboriginal Australia to the rest of the world is uh, how do we truly listen to this rain that is here around me at the moment, it's cleansing the earth, uh, to the animals, the birds that are around me, uh, to the uh, children that I work with, how do we truly listen to them? And not be shocked when I realize that they're telling me stories I don't want to hear. How do we listen to their mums and their dads? But more particularly, how do we, black and white, and all the shades in between, how do we listen to each other? And uh, this is Miriam Rose's, Miriam Rose Angama Borman's invitation to the Australian nation, listening to one another in contemplative reciprocal relationships. And then she outlines how we can work with that. Um, and I know in listening, uh, people's hearts are opened. Um, I've, I've had a story of a, being called down to a doctor's surgery because I had a, a woman there with her two children who was clearly in distress. And I sat on the floor in the doctor's surgery just listening to her. And she talked about um, just coming down from uh, a funeral from two of her sons. And she took this deep breath and she looked at me as she came out of this kind of trance. And then she said to me, nobody has ever listened to me like that before. 
quite frankly, all I did was sit on the floor and cry and put my hand on her foot just to keep her grounded while she told me the big story that she had. Are we truly listening to the planet, to the place in which we live? Are we truly listening to each other? Um, and are we strong enough and powerful enough to hold the pain uh, that's been created and know that we have the answers? Human beings have the answers. We just have to find a little bit of humility um, and know that, that uh, the answers are simple. It's seeing each other and being with each other and holding that pain so we can find our way forward together. Thank you for listening to BAU Business As Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's baupod.co.